Good morning to you all, dear Bible students. We are up to part 10 in this series, and the indications are that we will do a few more as questions come in on this topic. Now, picking up where we left off, I made the point last week that the ancient Hebrew writers had a peculiar way of expressing things, which has come down to be called the Hebrew idiom of permission. A figure of speech in which calamities or judgments which came upon the people of that time, which God permitted to happen or did not prevent from happening for whatever reason, is stated as if he did it. So we continue with a few more examples just to drive the point home even more firmly and to show how this came about, this way of speaking. In continuing in this line, I will now turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, and it reads, So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit, a witch that is, to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom over unto David the son of Jesse. 1 Chronicles 10, 13-14 King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was in constant rebellion against God. He ruled for 40 years, and year after year, and for many years, God was patiently seeking to win him over. Now, verse 14 clearly states that God slew King Saul. Now, let's read about how Saul was actually killed in the earlier verses of this same chapter. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, from verse 3, it reads, The fighting was fierce around Saul, and he was badly wounded by enemy arrows. Saul told his armor-bearer, Kill me with your sword. I don't want those godless Philistines to torture and make fun of me. But the soldier was afraid to kill him. Then Saul took his own sword, placed the point against his stomach, and purposely fell upon the blade, thrusting himself through with his own sword. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul had killed himself, he also killed himself in the same way. Thus Saul and three of his sons and all his male relatives were killed in the battle. 1 Chronicles 10, 3-6 now, different versions may read with slightly different wording, but all tell the same story. King Saul had turned away from God very early in his career as king over Israel. Earlier, he had stubbornly rebelled against the command of God concerning the war against some peoples, they were called the Amalekites. And listen to what Samuel the prophet had told him in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so Samuel told him, Saul, you've crossed that line. God has now rejected you. He's removed himself from you because you have rejected him. In 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14, we're told that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. In 1 Samuel 28 and verse 16, Samuel the prophet told him, he says, seeing the Lord is departed from you. Therefore, Saul, having rejected God's counsel and separated himself from God by his own iniquity, he went to war against the Philistines without God's protection. 
he had forfeited the presence of God. And having lost the presence of God, he had no real defense from his enemies. And thus he was injured by their arrows. And realizing that there was no escape, and not wanting to be captured alive and tortured, Saul placed the handle of his sword against the ground, the tip slanting upward, and he dropped his body weight against it so that it went right through him. He killed himself rather than allowed himself to be captured and tortured by his enemies. So why then does the Bible language say God slew him? The Hebrew idiom of permission. This is the way it was written back then, because God did not prevent him from killing himself. He had separated himself from God's protection by his continued rebellion. God could have done nothing more to help him, and thus God permitted the matter to run its natural course to its natural consequences. His constant rebellion against the will of God finally played itself out in bringing its result upon him, and God did not stop it. The Bible makes that very clear. We just read it. In reality, King Saul committed suicide. As we showed in the previous study, oftentimes what God permits or does not prevent from happening, he is described as doing it by the Bible writers. And as stated again in the previous study, this way of expressing certain things as if God did it when he did not, but merely allowed it to happen, is a commonly used figure of speech which is called the Hebrew idiom of permission. Why is this important to know? Because, dear friends, without this understanding, it would be difficult to have a clear knowledge of God's character of love and mercy and goodness and how he consistently operates along these lines. And we may end up harboring thoughts in our mind concerning God, which actually goes against his true nature. And these thoughts can become a hindrance to us having a right relationship with him, especially when we ourselves are under the gun and going through extreme difficulties. We might start doubting him, believing that he's punishing us, or he's using some of these methods of the enemy against us. Having this understanding embedded within our thinking, it helps us to see that God does not perpetrate violence against his creatures but merely honors their choice when they choose, notice, when they choose to reject his way and follow their own way. The Bible says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. Let us now consider another example. Reading from 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1. It says, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved upon David to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So here again, the text plainly states that God moved or tempted David to number Israel and Judah. But to number Israel was to commit sin because God had previously commanded that such a thing was not to be done. There is a reason behind that, but we won't get into that reason today. But in fact, David's conscience pricked him after he had numbered Israel. The scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 10, it says, And David's heart smote him, that means his conscience bothered him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. 
So his conscience bothered him. He knew he had done something wrong. But it says God moved him to do it. But how could God have moved upon David's heart to cause him to commit sin when, according to James chapter 1 and verse 13, God does not tempt or move anyone to sin? It says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. James 1.13 So obviously then, when we read in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1, that God was the one who moved upon David to number Israel, it is really saying that God permitted David to be moved or tempted by Satan. In other words, God has given us all freedom of choice. We can choose to give in to temptations of the enemy because he comes along and he tempts all of us. But we can choose to give in to the temptations of the enemy or the sinful desires of our own hearts. Or we can choose to resist such desires, resist such temptations by God's enabling grace. How can we know for sure that this conclusion is correct? That it was actually Satan who did it and not God? Because the correct interpretation of 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1, which speaks of God moving upon David to number Israel, the correct interpretation is confirmed in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1, which describes exactly the very same event. But notice how it's worded. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So though it says that God did it, in Samuel, it later informs us that it was Satan who actually moved David to sin by numbering Israel in Chronicles. By now you may be wondering, well, why didn't they just show that Saul killed himself and leave it at that? Or why did they have to write that God killed him when it was clear that Saul killed himself? Or why did it say that God moved David to number Israel and then tell us that it was Satan that did this? Why does it say that God destroyed Jerusalem when it clearly shows elsewhere that the heathen king of Babylon marched his armies against them and destroyed Jerusalem? Why did it say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart when it states elsewhere that it was Pharaoh who hardened his own heart? And there are many, many more cases that could be mentioned. These are all valid questions of well-thinking people, and thus they deserve a valid answer. As we have shown in prior studies, dear friends, the Bible is very clear on the fact that God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16. That God is light and there is no darkness in him. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. That he does no violence. Isaiah 53 and verse 9. And that he does not afflict anyone. Job 37 and verse 23. And that in all the afflictions that people bring upon themselves, God himself is afflicted. He feels their pain, in other words, Isaiah 63 and verse 9. And that only good and perfect things come from God, and that he never varies from this, James chapter 1, 16 to 17. The Bible is also clear that God is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his doings, Psalm 145 and verse 17. And that in the way of righteousness there is life and no death in that way. Proverbs 12.28 And there are many, many more scriptures that could be mentioned along these lines showing what God is like. But the Bible is also very clear on the fact 
that death entered into the human experience because of sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. James chapter 1 and verse 15 also says, Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The Bible also shows us that death is not something that God uses like a tool, but that it's an enemy of God. In fact, the Bible tells us that the last enemy that God will destroy is death. 1 Corinthians 15.26 It also tells us that Satan himself is the destroyer. Exodus 12.23 1 Corinthians 10 Revelation 9 Many places And in the words of Jesus himself, we're told that Satan is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. John 8.44 Now, I'm not wanting to inundate you with too many scriptures all at once, but there are many, many other texts that could also be mentioned along these lines too. So then, it is only reasonable for any thinking person to ask the question, why is it that in the Bible we see so many instances where it speaks of God destroying people, hardening people's hearts, or sending famines or calamities upon people, or slaying people? while it is almost silent about Satan doing these things. To the observant reader, especially in the Old Testament, it would seem as if God is doing the work of Satan, while there is hardly much mention of Satan doing these things. Why? Well, in answering this question, let's go back a little to the time when Israel had become a nation and Moses was leading them out of Egypt towards the land of Canaan. These lands were inhabited by many different nations who were heathen worshippers, the Canaanites they were called. And these nations had fully rejected God by filling up their cup of iniquity and so they were to be driven out of the land as Israel was coming in to possess it. Now concerning his purposes for the children of Israel, God had told Moses the following words, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, unto a good land, a good and large land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8. These are names of some of the nations. They had become demon worshippers. And in bringing Israel into Canaan, God did not want his people to become corrupted with these practices. But a few generations or so after entering the land, they gradually intermingled with the heathen and eventually adopted their idolatrous practices, thus rejecting their God. And concerning this, it is written in Deuteronomy 32.17, speaking of Israel, it says they sacrificed unto devils, not to God. So these were demons that they were worshipping. Again in the Psalms we read, Psalm 106 35 to 38, it says, But they were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. So God had done everything to discourage and to prevent this from happening. And in an effort to curb the tendencies towards idolatry, which the Israelites picked up when they were in bondage in Egypt, God gave them specific instructions through Moses 
that they should not even mention the name of any heathen gods out of their mouth. Notice Exodus 23 and verse 13. It says, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of your mouth. So notice that God instructed Moses to tell them that they should not even mention the name of these gods that the heathens worshipped. Remember now that I showed from the scriptures that these were actually devils or demonic beings or fallen angels that they were worshipping. And after Moses was laid to rest and Joshua took over the leadership of Israel to bring them into the land, the warning was again given. Joshua 23 verse 7 and 8, it says that you come not among these heathen, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourself unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done unto this day. So they were strongly prohibited from even mentioning the name of these satanic gods that the heathens worshipped. God was dealing with the people coming out of slavery and the spiritual darkness of a heathen land and bringing them step by step along. They were like children and needed to be taught all over again. So God said, do not even mention the name of these devils out of your mouth. And so out of this, there developed a kind of extreme fanaticism. They could not mention any other, so everything that happened was recorded as God did or God didn't do. Out of this emerged a manner of speaking in which everything that happened was stated as being done by the only God whose name they could mention. So their enemies destroyed their cities. It was written that God destroyed them. A king kills himself and it's written that God slew him. David numbers Israel and it's written that God moved upon him to not make him do it. Isaac's wife could not have children and it's written that God stopped up her womb. No consideration given to the fact that there are biological reasons that can prevent a woman from being able to have a child, even to this day. But that was just a manner of speaking. It was a cultural way of expressing things that developed out of the fact that they believed they could not mention even Satan's name for anything that happened. And so great effort was made not even to make slightest reference to Satan. Naturally then, any act of judgment or destruction which they suffered, especially as a result of their disobedience, or any seemingly supernatural event was mentioned as coming from the hand of God, the only God they could mention. A lack of understanding of the role of the destroyer and a fear of even mentioning his name or making reference to him resulted in the Old Testament being written attributing almost everything bad which happened to God. Over time, this developed into a peculiar way of expressing things, a Hebrew figure of speech, a Hebrew idiom in which everything was said to be done by God. This way of speaking became popular until it became the norm. So much so that even the prophets in their writings and their proclamations to the people used the same method. And this is why we find that Satan gets very little mention in the Old Testament. This fear of mentioning Satan or the devil has had many effects upon the Hebrew beliefs and ways of expressing things, even to this day. In fact, one very notable author and historian and philosopher named Martin Bobber, 
who himself is Jewish. In one of his books entitled Moses, that's the name of the book, on page 56, he wrote these words. The Hebrew religion knows no Satan. If a power attacks a man and overpowers him, it is normal to see in this the hand of Yahweh, no matter how dreadful it may be. Notice, this is a Hebrew himself who says that this was the norm for them to point everything to the hand of Yahweh, no matter how dreadful it was. It was a use of language that was common to their culture. That's why he wrote that the Hebrew religion knows no Satan. It doesn't mean they didn't know about Satan. He's just meaning that they abstained from making references to Satan, particularly during the Old Testament period. So who gets mentioned in everything? God. It was only after their exile as captives in Babylon that you begin to see a few more references to Satan. And even then, they did not refer to him directly, but under different metaphors. For example, the prophet Isaiah calls him Lucifer, son of the morning. Ezekiel calls him the king of Tyre. And Daniel calls him the prince of Persia. So even though he was mentioned, it was still not very directly because, to some degree, this was still kind of taboo among them. However, after they came out of captivity in Babylon, and understanding became more clear, some began to realize that it is not that mentioning the name of Satan was in itself a sin, it was just a matter of overemphasizing that they should have nothing to do with the worship practices of the heathen in their demonic worship. After they were freed from Babylon, and as they began to rebuild their city from the ruins and rebuild their temple after 70 years of captivity, they also began to re-record their history to see where they went wrong. In other words, to chronicle their history. And thus we see a little more light coming through. For example, as we saw earlier in 2 Samuel 24.1, where it says that God moved upon David to number Israel, we see now in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel, speaking of the same event. So notice that what is said that God did in Samuel is now said that Satan did in Chronicles. Why? Because wherein Samuel was written before the captivity, Chronicles was written after the captivity, when they began to rewrite their history. And by then, they had time to reflect upon the past. They were slowly getting a better understanding of things. They had taken the name thing to an extreme. And by the way, this is not the only thing that they took to a wrong extreme. But they started coming to see that it was not that they couldn't mention the devil's name. It was just a way of emphasizing that they should stay as far as possible away from becoming contaminated with the devil worship of the heathens. They realized that even though they would never mention the name, they had still gotten caught up in it, so much so that God had to give them up to their enemies. And it was thus that the king of Babylon was able to besiege their cities and take them captive. So not mentioning the name was not really the issue. Later we see that Jesus and the apostles mentioned Satan and devils and demons and all that many times in the New Testament, and it was not sin to do so. But the ancient Hebrews held on to this no-name mentioned thing, and they still ended up worshipping demons. So by the time they started writing the Chronicles, their eyes were opening up a bit, 
And so in this instance, they corrected what was written before and wrote that it was Satan's work upon David, not God's work upon David. So the Bible explains itself. But even then, as always, tradition dies hard. And the Hebrew manner of expression persisted for many centuries. They were so accustomed to the reading of the Old Testament according to their idiom that many to a great extent lost sight of the true understanding of God's character. But today, dear friends, we who are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ have the privilege of knowing him aright and having every doubt banished from our minds. We have the privilege of knowing that destruction will come upon the rejecters of God's mercy. Yes, but God is never the destroyer. He is creator, dear friends. He is redeemer. He is savior. He is life giver, not life taker. And in some simple questions, he lets us know that light and darkness, life and death, cannot come from the same source. What simple questions? For example, we find in James chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, notice what it says. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet and bitter water? The obvious answer is no. Verse 12, can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries or a vine bear figs? The obvious answer is no. And then it says, so can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. The idea is that God is either life giver or life taker, not both. Both do not come from the same source. God is healer. He's sustainer. He's life giver, dear friends. Understand, dear friends, the character of God is exactly as we saw revealed in the life of Jesus Christ when we read the New Testament. A God of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness who would rather be crucified for the sinner than destroy the sinner. A God who says to all mankind, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, O turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. That's what God says. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, of anyone. Dear friends, it is my sincere prayer that this study would have spoken to your heart and given a little bit more understanding of the one whom the Bible calls holy, harmless, and undefiled. Harmless means he does no harm. Have a great week, and we'll catch up again with the next study. God bless you all. 